You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. For more than 35 years, Jeffrey Owens has been known as Elvin from The Cosby Show. As we kick off Black History Month here on the podcast, I sat down with Jeffrey to talk about his own history as an actor, the lucky breaks that have come his way, as well as the hardships he's faced, and what it means to be so singularly identified with one show. I'm much more than The Cosby Show, not, not to belittle The Cosby Show. The Cosby Show was, was huge. It was significant. It was important. It was meaningful. But, of course, I've done so much more than that. And, and a lot of the, even the theater stuff that people don't even know about. Welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, or Win Me for short. Here you'll learn how artists and creatives handle the setbacks and challenges in their career. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, a professional actor and singer for almost 30 years. For more insights and to take a deeper dive into the WinMe community, go to whyillnevermakeit.com. By joining this podcast as a monthly member, you can get access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as coachings and consultations with me. Again, you'll find all that and more at whyillnevermakeit.com. Throughout his career, Jeffrey Owens has been an actor, director, and teacher. But he's best known for his seven seasons on The Cosby Show, from 1985 to 92, and more recently for a photo that surfaced in 2018 of him working at Trader Joe's. I've wanted to bring him on the show for a while now and finally reached out to him this past summer in 2020, introducing myself and the podcast. After several months of back and forth, our schedules finally aligned for us to sit down and chat about the long and illustrious career he's had. But just as we were getting started with the interview, he said something that surprised me. From what I can tell from what you said about your podcast and your themes or whatever, you don't mind people being honest about things. I prefer that. Yeah, because I, I find so many actor interviews are like, yeah, I'm doing this great job. And oh, people yeah. are so wonderful. So you're, it's like, you're not looking for feel good material. I'm looking for things that have gone wrong, but then how you overcame them or if you did, it's that kind of stuff. That's what I like to focus on. Okay, because I, I, uh, I just want to feel like I can say whatever I feel like saying. Oh, that's actually what I hope all my guests will feel like. Absolutely. Cool. And with that, we began our conversation. In part one, we talk about his work on The Cosby Show and how it's impacted his career since then. And in part two, we focus on that Trader Joe's photo and the true meaning and importance of work. Though he's appeared in many TV shows and films, Jeffrey's first love is the stage. He grew up in Brooklyn, New York and attended the High School of Performing Arts which is known by most people as the high school featured in the film and TV series, Fame. Jeffrey went on to graduate from Yale University, and two years later, he had a chance audition for a TV show that would ultimately change the course of his life. Welcome, Jeffrey Owens, to the podcast. It's so nice to have you here. Absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for per being persistent. Now, 
your experiences and training as an actor early on were, were mostly theater-based, particularly in, in, in Shakespeare and that type of thing. Was television part of your plan as you began your acting career? It really wasn't. I mean, it really wasn't. I mean, it's funny to say that now, considering how much of it I've done and that the fact that till, still to this day, I'm, I'm mostly you know recognized as that guy on the Cosby show. That's definitely the most... Uh, you know, well-known thing I've ever done. But, you know, when I started out coming out of college, getting theater jobs, I really didn't give television and film much of a thought at all. I was just um, bent on doing theater. So when the Cosby Show thing happened, it was kind of a side, kind of out of the blue. And uh, I almost felt kind of sideswiped by it. Um, <laughs> I, I actually remember being concerned that it might cut too much into my theater stuff. <laughs> I, I was, you know, like, okay, this is cool, but uh, I hope this won't keep me from doing theater. Well, at the time it was a new show. I, they were just in their second season when you auditioned. That's right. It was actually a wild story. I, I actually, when people ask me, how did I get the job on the Cosby show? My answer is my mother. And then they look at me as if I have five heads and then I have to explain, no, you don't understand. It really is my mother. Uh, my mother was the one who actually connected me with the agent that ended up submitting me for the Cosby show through whom I got the show. How about that? <laughs> now, when it comes to, you had mentioned being so identified with, with the Cosby show, and for more than 35 years, it, it has almost been Cosby show actor Jeffrey Owens. Now, does that feel limiting? Do, do you wish people like me would stop asking about it? Like, what are your feelings on that? It, it, it has at times felt limiting. I'm not, you know, I don't care if people, you know, I don't mind people asking me about it. Um, I feel like I've done enough since then that whether people know it or not, or recognize it or not, I know that I'm much more than the Cosby Show. Not not to belittle the Cosby Show. The Cosby Show was was huge. It was significant. It was important. It was meaningful. Um, so I don't, I'm not belittling it by saying that, but of course I've done so much more than that. And, and a lot of the, even the theater stuff that people don't even know about, but no, I mean, at times I have felt a little bit like just in terms of casting, I have felt that at times people have just identified me with that in the business that, that has been bothersome that people in the business casting wise, like, Oh, he's Elvin. We know, we know what he is. We know who he is. We know what he does. I remember there was one story when um, a well-known director was auditioning for a film. My agent, I guess, you know, tried to get me submitted for it. And the response was something like, oh, yes, we, we, we know Jeff. Thank you. We, we, we know Jeffrey's work. Thank you very much. And I, I never knew whether what that really meant, but I couldn't help feeling like they must mean they know that he's Elvin and then we're not looking for that. And there was no recognition that I could do more than that. And that was that was frustrating, yeah. Once the Cosby show ended, I, I imagine in some ways, was it hard to find work? Was there that certain expectation of the kind of actor you were, the types of roles you should be in? Well, you know what? It was interesting. I continued to work in the theater pretty consistently because I worked, even while I was on the Cosby show, because I was a semi-regular, if you want to put it that way, I, I worked in the theater while I was on the show. I kept working in the theater after the show. But it was interesting because 
after the show ended, I didn't get much TV and film work, actually. And a lot of people, when they come off of a, a show, especially a successful show with that much with notoriety and that much attention, that much fo focus, might very well go into another show, be offered another show, or at least have a lot of audition opportunities for those shows. I tell you, Patrick, for whatever reason, and maybe it was because of what was going on in my life otherwise at the time, I don't know, maybe because it wasn't enough my focus or whatever, but for whatever reason, that did not happen at all. In fact, um, auditions even, let alone jobs, were, were kind of few and far between. Uh, I remember the first significant thing I did after Cosby was the paper, which, um, you know, the Cosby show ended in March 92, and I filmed the paper in the summer of 93. So over a year had gone by between the end of the Cosby show and my next even remotely significant acting job. Hmm. I imagine that year, year and a half was, you, you started wondering what, what, what's happening? When's, when's my next thing going to come up? I wondered, I wasn't too concerned about it. As I said, I was doing theater. I was involved in other things in my life that took a lot of focus. So I wasn't worried about it, but it did occur to me, you know, Hey, I mean, this is, this is a little odd that, uh, you know, I did this hit show for, I was on it for seven seasons and, and I, I just kind of expected, I guess, somewhere in my heart, I expected that things would come from it. And, uh, that was not the case. Now with your theater, you said that you continued to do that. Then your theater life really wasn't affected by Cosby show one way or the other. Um, uh, so occasionally it was, but but for the most part, I I worked on Cosby seldom enough so that I could do shows. I could do shows in theater. I only I only recall one maybe two instances where there was a conflict between the show and a theater project. There was a theater project I got at Yale at one point. Yale Rep was the it's funny because it's the only time I've ever been cast at the Yale Rep that I couldn't do because of my Cosby contract. And, Don't and you that, love that was maddening. I remember that was so frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had my own where it's like you go months and months and months without work, and then finally three offers come in at the same time. You're like, really? Oh my god! Couldn't you spread this that out? Is, that's happened so many times. Uh, yeah, it's it's frustrating, and it's like, come on, theaters, get together. You know, I'm free. Let's spread these out. <laughs> I once turned down playing Macduff to Stacy Keach's Macbeth at the Shakespeare Theater of Washington, D.C., the, the great theater there, because I thought I had a job on Broadway with Richard Harris. Wow. And that job eventually got postponed and then went away. Oh, that that's even worse when you when you finally decide between offers and the one offer you go with drifts away. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yep. frustrating. That's frustrating. Now, when you joined the Cosby show by that second season, it had already picked up steam and you knew you were coming into a hit show. I knew very vaguely, Patrick. I had heard some things, but I didn't know much of anything. I wasn't a television watcher. I wasn't a ratings reader. I had no interest in any of that. So when I got onto the show at, towards the beginning of the second season, and the show had been on one season and was was well on its way to becoming a hit and very popular, um, I knew nothing about the hype. 
I knew I, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know the characters' names. I didn't know the actors' names other than Bill. Hmm. I came in cold, which was good for me because I, you know, I was that's the character I was playing. I was playing a character that came cold into the family. <laughs> yeah, who was a little clueless about things. Yes, exactly my situation as an actor. So it fit. It worked. So so then even though this was your television debut, I'm sure there came with it some nerves. But then because of that, uh, I guess, naivete, for lack of a better word, you weren't as nervous being around all these people on this hit show. No, no, I really wasn't that nervous. Um, first of all, I didn't, as again, as I said, I didn't know enough to be nervous. Second of all, Cosby was the only reason to be nervous. I had always, always admired him since I was a kid. But he treated me extremely well, and he was very, very gracious to me, very generous with me. So he put me on at ease. He made me feel like I was doing well. So I was fine with that. The way we filmed was like doing theater. First of all, there was a live audience when we taped it, which was which was I was totally used to. In fact, I appreciated it. Secondly, there were four cameras, not just three, but a four-camera setup. So that basically I could just do my work like it was a theater scene. I I didn't have to worry about hitting marks particularly, all that technical stuff that when you do one and two camera work, you have to really think about marks and stuff. I could just do the scene like I was doing a theater scene on stage and the cameras would get it. That's great. Yes. So you didn't have a lot of like pickup shots where you have to do it from this angle, then turn around and do it from this angle. No, no, very little of that. All the years that I was on the show, very little of that. I, I was very comfortable with how it was set up because of my theater experience. The executive producers of The Cosby Show, Marcy Carsey and Tom Warner, had produced earlier sitcom hits like Three's Company and Mork and Mindy. But writing and developing a comedy based on the lives of an upper-middle-class Black family was new territory for these producers. While Bill Cosby was the heart of the show and his stand-up comedy was the basis for his character, Cliff Huxtable, the producers hired noted black psychiatrist Alvin Passant as a consultant to elevate the show beyond just another sitcom. You know, we saw all the shows on television, that's my mama, what's happening, all those shows. So uh, Cosby knew he didn't want a show like that. Didn't want the clown buffoonish stereotyping type things, and he wanted it something that would 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 make uh, kind of um, be on a high ground and inspire and eliminate certain kinds of stereotypes that people had about black people, but also to promote education and good things, and that he wanted the show to be story driven, not a bunch of one-liners, which is a major decision. Because that's where I came in. He, one of my jobs was to make sure the plots and stuff was believable. And a big part of that believability was highlighting moments and events and ideas that were important to the Black community. An episode that stood out to me, even as a kid, is when the grandparents visited the Huxtable family and recounted their experiences in the March on Washington led by Martin Luther King. Yeah, I mean, I honestly don't know how the real life experiences matched up with to what was written for the show. But I know that, look, I mean, the people in that show, Earl Hyman, Cosby himself, you know, 
any of the older people in in the show that that, that play characters, you know, had personal connections with the whole civil rights experience. You know, I know there was an episode where the family just sits down and watches, just watches on television minutes of the MLK I Have a Dream speech. There's that beautiful episode where Rudy's watching, the whole family just stands there looking and watching. It's gorgeous, you know. But uh, I mean, that wasn't, you know, I wasn't part of those episodes, but um, I know that Bill did a lot of stuff deliberately to celebrate uh, Black culture and, and, and Black achievement. Part of Alvin Passant's job was to go through and eventually sign off on every script. But this wasn't normal practice in TV production, especially on a sitcom. And he was met with resistance from most of the writing team. Nearly all of them were white writers except one who wrote an occasional script. And I could tell when the black writer wrote the script, too. The trouble with the white writers was not so much they were racist. It was that they didn't have the experience. They didn't know the context of what they were writing about. And then if you ask them, where did you learn about black families? They didn't have an answer for you because it wasn't from hanging with black people. It was from other stuff they had seen on TV. And so sometimes that was the biggest problem because I would get a script and one of the students would be talking about applying to colleges and they would have in Yale, Oberlin, Swarthmore, Princeton, and the University of California. And I would flag it. And I would say, take out Princeton, put in Morehouse, take out UCLA and put in Howard. One of the writers said, what's Morehouse? <laughs> they had never heard of Morehouse. So how can they put in Morehouse if they had never heard of Morehouse as a historically black? It was like sometimes that simple. The true beauty and ultimate success of The Cosby Show was that it highlighted important black cultural touch points while at the same time appealed to a wide multicultural audience. We were aware that we were all part of a show that had certain kind of messages and we were very happy and comfortable with that, absolutely. We were all very proud to be part of a show that was not only funny, but was meaningful. That was not only, yes, particularly and deliberately black, but was also remarkably universal. People have told me over the years about the universality of The Cosby Show, that yes, it was a black family, but that everyone seemed to be able to relate to it. Mm -hmm. oh, an elderly Italian woman came up to me once, she was of Sicilian descent, and she said, oh, Bill Cosby reminded me so much of my father. An old Sicilian woman. <laughs> And I thought, yeah, because fathers are fathers. Yeah, and it's interesting, the, the scenes that you two had, he was very much the you know wary father-in-law to you, to your character. Did any of the tensions that are between the characters ever spilled out in real life? No, no, I, I don't. Um, I mean, of all the years that I was on the show, I think there was just maybe one day or one a few moments of one day when Bill and I were maybe a little artistically at odds about something. It had to do with the writing. Very late in like the seventh or eighth uh, season, there was some scene in which I didn't get it. I didn't understand what the writing was doing. And I was asking a lot of questions of the writers. And 
I think he might have gotten a little concerned that I wasn't accepting the script as it was as much as he might have wanted me to. And so there was a little bit of, I won't even say tension maybe, but just, you know, um, we didn't, we weren't coming from the same place, you know, and that was the only instance I can think of on all, on all the years, but generally, no, I never had the sense. I always felt like he trusted me a lot and appreciated me a lot. And uh, never the spillover, never the confusion, no. Yeah. And and on the flip side of that, I assume there were many times, though, that <laughs> you may have had to, to redo a scene because of laughter or just, you know, cutting up. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, there's a whole wonderful blooper reel for Cosby that I, I would hope that at some point they just didn't like an hour special on on Cosby bloopers because there's a there's a ton of them. I've seen them from time to time and they're hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> now, in in recent years, obviously the Cosby Show has has been seen differently as Bill Cosby himself has. Has that affected you in any way? Yes, but only very slightly. Um, well, in two in two ways. One, financially, to a certain extent, because the show for a while was pulled completely, and then for a longer while pulled partially from te- television. There was a certain amount of uh, income from residuals that I haven't gotten. Um, so there was some financial loss, but that almost seems petty to mention, uh, you know, under the circumstances. But yeah, I was I was affected in just that bottom line way. And then the other way is just never knowing what to say about the situation, who's listening, who will be offended you know, what's right to say, what's wrong to say. My whole take on the whole thing that happened was, I don't know, I wasn't there. And even saying that much, remaining neutral, like, I really don't know. I really don't know what to say about it. I really don't know what's true. How could I? Put you in an odd position, because there are some people who will read into that, that you don't want to take the side of certain you know, you don't want to take certain sides or whatever, and that's, you know, wrong or whatever. So, you know, that's been a bit of a minefield that has been a little annoying trying to navigate, trying to negotiate, but it hasn't come my way that much. I did an interview recently about Shift Happens, the the Instagram show that I've started and I'm hosting, and the interviewer all of a sudden asked me a Bill Cosby-related question, and I said a certain thing that had to do with my being a friend of his and the interviewer jumped on it and made it or tried to make it sound like I was condoning what he did and that I, or that I didn't have enough sympathy for his alleged victims. Like she turned it right on me in the middle of an interview about shift happens. And I really resented that. Because your career and your personal life has nothing to do with whatever Bill Cosby has done. Absolutely. And nor does the fact that I could still consider him someone who was a positive influence in my life, should that cause anyone to judge me? I remember going to see Bill Cosby live. It was like the one time I finally got to see his stand-up when he came to Orlando, and I was over the moon, excited to see this icon of comedy and television, someone that I had grown up watching, to see him live. And despite whatever's happened, the the work that he did, both in The Cosby Show and other things, that the stand-up that he'd done, yes, he did some horrible things and was convicted for that, but 
I don't think that that takes away from the wonderful work that he did do in other areas. And, and some people can't separate those two. Other people like me can find a way to separate the two. I've met a lot of people who can separate it. I've met a lot of people who can't. And it's a personal thing. It's, it's up to everybody individually to, to treat it as they want. And that's, and that's that. Let's let it go with that. Whether it's TV, film, or theater, actors often find work in unexpected ways and through unexpected people. Jeffrey mentioned earlier that he got the audition for Cosby Show through his mother. And he has plenty of other stories and chance encounters like that throughout his career. Things happen in the weirdest ways, Patrick. I'm sure every actor has at least one or two stories like this. But uh, another one was later, many years later when I was in L.A., um, I ended up getting contacted by Estelle Parsons, with whom I'd worked with in the theater for many for a long time. Um, she was directing Al Pacino in a play in L.A. and wanted to know if I wanted to be in it. But the funny part of this story is the only way that she found me, the only way that she got my number or even knew that I was in L.A. rather than New York was that her daughter told her that I was in L.A. and her daughter gave her my phone number because I had bumped into her daughter a, a couple of weeks before that at a child's birthday party. <laughs> and if not for that child's birthday party, Estelle would never have been able to find me. And I would not have done Salome without Pacino, which ended up being one of the highlights of my theater career. It's amazing. I, you know, I've, I've had limited opportunity to work with such big names in, in Broadway or TV. And there's a bit of awestruckness when you start it and you're meeting these people for the first time. Did you have any of those kind of like nervous fanboy moments of meeting someone that you looked up to? Actually, it's funny. Of all the people I ever worked with, Pacino, Duval, Glenn Close, Frank Langella, Michael Keaton, Bill Cosby, uh, you, you I mean, like t so many people. The one that I felt skittishly starstruck about was Uma Thurman. <laughs> <laughs> now, why her in particular? I don't know. I worked with her on one episode. It was one scene of a, of a, of a, a miniseries, a television miniseries called The Slap. And I played her obstetrician, her gynecologist, um, and... She walked into the room and I, I don't know whether, I mean, I've never had a crush on her or anything. I never gave it a second thought. I was a huge fan of the Kill Bill movies. The Kill Bill movies are, are two of my favorite films. <laughs> um, and she walked into the room and the combination of, I mean, she's a beautiful woman and she's actually more beautiful in person than I ever seen her on film, which was kind of was like, wow. But the fact that she was real, you know, associated with two of my favorite movies, the combination, I don't know what it was. I was like a little kid. I was so nervous, so starstruck. It was really, you know, it, it was, I, I was surprised at myself because I'd actually never had that reaction before, no matter how, you know, esteemed and, and famous the person had been. So that was kind of funny. <laughs> 
Yeah, I've had a couple of those. I, you know, for me, I tried to just kind of take the bull by the horns, approach them and be like, I'm a big fan. It's such a great opportunity to work with you. You know, and just tried to get get all that out of the way. But and and, and of course they kind of chuckle it off. Did did she kind of laugh it off as as you were trying to 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 get the words out? You know what? I don't even think that I did that. I don't think I had the nerve to say, hi, Ms. Thurman, uh, uh, you know, Jeffrey Owens, I, I've appreciated your work. I usually do that kind of thing. I don't think I did it in this case. And she didn't say anything to me, um, you know, and so it was like an hour into working with each other that we kind of actually looked each other in the eye and go, hey, it said, hey, you know, and at one point, just for fun, she reached over and poked me in the tummy. Patrick, she poked me in the tummy. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to wash that spot again. Yeah, it was, it was so funny. So, but no, all the conventional, you know, what you do in those situations went out the window. It was, it was, it was, of course. Yeah. You, You know, it's funny that you bring up poking in the belly because I was in Jubilee in Las Vegas and we were doing this, uh, this opening night for the producers, which was just opening at a theater next to us. Yes. And so the producers was having an opening night party and Robert Goulet was there. Robert Goulet. I, right. Right. And of course I had to go meet him. So I, I had a friend carry the camera and I went up to him and at first, when I said, hi, Mr. Goulet, my name is Patrick, he kind of has that face of, okay, all right, I'm meeting someone else. But as soon as I said, I'm one of the singers in Jubilee, his face lit up. He's like, oh, you're a singer. Hey, how you doing? He's, you know, I asked for a picture. He's like, sure. He puts his arm around me and starts poking me in the belly while we're taking the picture. Oh, how funny. <laughs> you got a poking in the belly story, too. <laughs> Right, right. And so the picture I have, you see his finger about to poke me as the picture's being taken. I'm laughing, of course. But you know what's interesting about that story is that you, 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 when you have a connection with somebody, it makes the the difference. You know, at first it was just okay. Here's this kid approaching me, and then there was a connection. I remember I worked with Anthony LaPaglia on an episode of um, Without a Trace. And I came up to him and I said, hi, Mr. LaPai, I'm Jeffrey Owens working on the episode. And, you know, he had that face like, you know, not not rude or anything, but kind of like, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, like, you know, he gets approached a million times, you know, every, you know. And then I said, I saw you on Broadway in um, View from the Bridge. And man, his face changed. I, I said, I thought you were wonderful. And it was like a whole different thing between us. Huh. There was a real significant substantial connection because of that. It meant a lot to him. It that meant so much. I could tell that that theater experience meant so much to him. And the fact that I had actually seen him meant something. And that's to probably him. something that people don't mention when they when they meet him. So that's probably another reason. Right. Perhaps not. Yeah. So yeah. Whether as actors or in the audience. There are those shows, those characters, those performances that stand out in our minds and have a deeper meaning beyond just simple entertainment. And I have to admit that The Cosby Show was one of those pivotal shows as I was growing up. Since Bill Cosby's downfall, I, like many people, stopped watching The Cosby Show. But in doing research for this interview with Jeffrey and in putting these episodes together, 
I found myself going down the YouTube rabbit hole of this scene with Rudy or that scene with Theo and that episode where all the couples are fighting at a picnic in the Huxtable's backyard. But then I came across one of the most iconic scenes featuring Jeffrey and Felicia Rashad. Now, Elvin wasn't always the brightest bulb and had some antiquated notions of the husband-wife dynamic. Well, Claire Huxtable sets him straight. How you doing, Alvin? Hi, Dr. Huxtable. How are you? Thanks for letting me in. It's okay. <laughs> Hi, Mrs. Huxtable. Hello, Elvin. Is Sandra ready? Well, uh, not yet, but she'll be down in a little while. Would you and Dr. Huxtable like some coffee? Coffee? Yeah, coffee. You mean you're going to get it? Yes. You're surprised? I'm sorry, Mrs. Huxtable. I didn't think you did that kind of thing. What kind of thing? You know, serve. Serve whom? S serve him. Oh, serve him! As in serve your man? Well, yeah. Let me tell you something, Elvis. <laughs> you see, I am not serving Dr. Huxtable, okay? Okay. That's the kind of thing that goes on in a restaurant. Now, I'm going to bring him a cup of coffee, just like he brought me a cup of coffee this morning. And that, young man, is what marriage is made of. It is give and take 50-50. And if you don't get it together and drop these macho attitudes, you are never going to have anybody bringing you anything, anywhere, anyplace, anytime, ever. <laughs> now, what would you like in your coffee? Maybe I could get you some coffee. Elvin, that's all right. I don't mind getting it, but thanks for offering. Elvin? Yes, sir? <laughs> when she brings the coffee back, if I were you, I wouldn't drink it. <laughs> Coming up in part two of our conversation, Jeffrey gives us some backstory to that Trader Joe's photo. We talk about the evolving definition and meaning of work since then. And we also get into the rough road we actors travel in trying to find work both before and during this pandemic. Thank you so much for joining us in our conversation today. If you know someone who you think could benefit from this episode, please tell them about this podcast. Or you could forward them the Win Me newsletter. Subscribe to those monthly updates and news by going to whyillnevermakeit.com. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of recording, editing, and producing this podcast. Dylan Adams is the booking producer. Music in this episode provided under Creative Commons license. Links to the artist and their music can be found in the show notes. Join me next time for part two of our conversation as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now.
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org, because only together we rise.